I've, I've entitled the sermon, um, Failing Forward. The series is called Mark, Following Jesus Immediately. Everyone say immediately. immediately. What does that mean? Right away. Back in the day, uh, the old timers used to say straight away. Y'all ever heard that? You come here straight away. Uh, my, my grandfather used to say that, and, and he meant it <laughs> when he said come here straight away. Uh, we all knew what that meant, and we knew there was a switch behind it if you didn't get there straight away. Um, it, it means to get there quick. Uh, you've heard this statement before, lights, camera, action. Well, that aptly describes Mark's gospel. It is a gospel of action. It is a gospel of movement. It goes fast. It goes really fast. Mark um, is, is a gospel, uh, a historical account of what Jesus did. And he really focuses on the movement, the action of Jesus. So let's look at some of these and um, things. And you can jot these down, grab, grab whatever you think is pertinent to yourself. I would encourage you to. I always like to resource you. There's some great resources out there. A lot of us have a, a, a music subscription. So we pay a few dollars a month and we listen to whatever's out there. I would encourage you to go on your music subscription site and type in the Gospel of Mark. You're going to get a whole album in there by um, Michael Card that's written off the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I think it'd be great as we go through this if that's something that you listen to all the time. I would also encourage you to listen to the Gospel of Mark in several different versions. Um, you can do that on your Bible app. Um, it is the shortest of all the Gospels at only 16 chapters. Um, Matthew takes up 45 pages in the Greek language. Luke uh, 47. John takes up 42, I believe. And Luke comes in at 30 pages in the, in the Greek language. So it's a, it's a short, fast, action-packed gospel. So let's look at some details here. And you can grab these down, put them on the back of your sheet uh, if you'd like to. Um, there, there's nothing worse than a movie that starts off slow and stays slow. Or a book. You ever read a book that is hard to get into? Right? And that's fine if it picks up somewhere. Right? You don't have any trouble with Mark. Man, he, he, he starts off with movement, and he doesn't stop moving until the end. Um, so the author, obviously, is some guy named Mark. And we're going we're gonna to talk in the second half of this morning. I'm going to focus on him, so I'm not going to put a lot of focus on but His name is Mark. He was not one of the 12, uh, but he was very closely connected uh, to one of the 12, We'll see, and that was Peter. Uh, so the, the date, this was probably written between 64 and 65 A.D. For you historians, and we should all be historians, uh, what big thing happened in 70 A.D.? Right, yeah, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So that had not yet happened. That doesn't show up anywhere in here. Um, it is, as written, it is one of the, er it is the earliest, the first gospel that was written. And it's obvious that shortly thereafter, um, Matthew was written and Luke was written, and they borrowed heavily from Mark's history. Matter of fact, I thought this was interesting, 95%, that's a lot, 95% of Mark's history can be found 
in Matthew and Luke. And he wrote first. Isn't that fascinating? So they really used heavily uh, um, Mark's gospel. And you can see up there, his source was Peter. Um, he, at one point, was Peter's scribe for sure. Um, and we'll look more about maybe uh, a different relationship he might have with Peter. But he got all of his information from Peter. And Peter was a firsthand eye, what? Witness of everything that happened. So he's getting this from Peter himself. This is interesting too. The word immediately. The, the, the series I'm, I'm titling um, Following Jesus Immediately, Mark. The word immediately shows up 80 times in the New Testament. And um, half of those times are in Mark's gospel. Over 40 times the word immediately or the Greek equivalent shows up in Mark's gospel. And in the rest of the New Testament, it's only 40 more sprinkled out throughout all the books. So <clears throat> it is the gospel of immediacy. Uh, it's happening. It's an action-packed gospel. There are 35 recorded miracles of Christ in the gospels. 18 of them are in Mark. So we get a lot of the miracles. Mark has over half of Jesus' recorded miracles are found in Mark's gospels. This is a gospel of action. It is a gospel of deeds. Um, the great Benjamin Franklin said this, um, well done is better than well said. Right? Well done is better than well said. Mark's gospel is a record more of what Jesus did and less of what he said. Mark's gospel records the actions of Jesus. That's why we have all the miracles. Uh, it does record some of his teaching, but you can see the focus is very much weighted toward what he did. And there's a reason for that. Um, and it's his audience. Matthew writes to Jews. Matthew's a good Jew, and he writes to Jewish people to convince them that Jesus is the, is the Messiah, the King of Israel, right? Mark, however, although, although Jewish, he is writing to Roman Christians. Matter of fact, we we're pretty sure that um, the Gospel of Mark was written in Rome while he was there. Uh, so uh, Mark here is writing to a, a mostly Gentile Roman church. And, and that explains why in his Gospel, as we'll see throughout the next um, few weeks and months, he, he goes into detail to explain Jewish customs and rituals because he's, he's writing to people who aren't Jews. So he's going to give an explanation. Uh, so that helps us a little bit the, uh, is that he is writing to Jewish people, or to not Jewish people, but mostly to Gentiles. And he explains the Jewish customs and rites. He presents Jesus as the great... Um, Servant Savior. That's his big focus. Jesus is the great servant Savior. And servanthood is a theme in his historical gospel here. Uh, not only is Jesus the servant, but we're called to serve as well. Um, and if you'll look in Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, notice how it starts. Mark begins it saying, the, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, that starts off in gear already. 
You notice what's missing there? We see nothing of Jesus' history. There's no, nothing about his birth. There's no genealogy such as in Matthew and Luke. Um, there's nothing about Christ's past such as in John who takes us all the way back to the creation event itself. As John is depicting Jesus as the son of God, the, the God man who walks the face of the earth, he is the God who was there at creation. What do we have with Mark? Lights, camera, action. Welcome to the good news of Jesus, the king, the son of God. And here we go. Scene one, we're going to open with the baptism of Jesus, right? So he goes right to the very first thing. Here's how the good news starts for John. It's all about this, this uh, action. There's no genealogy given for servants. It didn't matter. So we don't see that in Matthew's gospel. Cicero said this. He said, in the master there is a servant, and in the servant there is a master. And we're going to see that in Mark's gospel. So I'm excited to walk through uh, this gospel of Mark with you this year um, and see what God has for us as we revisit this from Mark's standpoint. And in a moment, we're going to talk about who Mark is. Um, so Mark breaks down pretty, in a pretty interesting way. There are basically three acts in Mark, if you can think of a play. There are three acts. The first act is verses one, or chapters 1 through 8, and you have that on your sheet in front of you there. And that, that answers the question, who is Jesus? Who is this guy? Um, and, and in Acts 1 through 8, we see Jesus mostly he's, he's in Galilee, which is in the northern Palestine. And it's important to understand that. As you see a map of, of, of Palestine, Galilee's at the top. And the big feature of Galilee is something called the Sea of what? Galilee. Now, it's not a sea like the ocean, but it's a pretty good-sized lake. Um, and that sits right at the northernmost border of, of Galilee, which is a northern province, the northernmost province of Palestine. When you think province, think um, like our county. Um, uh, all of Palestine's small, about the size of the state of Vermont. Did you realize that? Israel, the whole thing is about the size of the state of Vermont. So these are literally like counties. So the Galilee is a northern county, and that's where Jesus hung out. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, which is on the southern, just south of the uh, Sea of Galilee. His home base for his ministry was in Capernaum, which is the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and which, by the way, for what it's worth, is absolutely gorgeous. That is like a tropical paradise. The northern shore of the Sea of Galilee is beautiful. The mountains all come down and kind of tumble into the, to the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, and that, that's where Jesus home base was with his disciples he spends a lot of time most of his of his earthly ministry is spent in the north in Galilee um, there's a problem with that and that is the southern province is the province of Judea and the majority of Jewish people lived in Judea and they did not like the Galileans the southerners did not like the northerners. And I know those of us in Georgia can't imagine that to be true. <laughs> but they really didn't. Um, the, think about it. Judah, Judea, this area, Jerusalem was there, the capital. So all of the good Galileans who lived up north would come down those six times a year uh, for the feasts 
where they had to present themselves before the Lord, the men anyway, uh, in the temple. So they would all come down. So it got visited regularly. But the South was far more conservative Jewish people than those in the North. Also, think about it. You got the Northern Israel. You know what bumps up against that? You have Asia and Asia Minor. And it's interesting if you look at the map. I should have put a picture of it up here. Everything is like a funnel. And it all comes down through Galilee. Those were trade routes. So the people in Galilee had a lot of contact with non-Jewish people. And that's why the Southerners didn't like them. And that's why later on we'll see when, when uh, Philip is told about Jesus, his statement is, can anything good come out of Galilee? Why? Because he's a good Judean Jew. He said, there are a bunch of liberals up there. That can't be the Messiah. And the way Messiah is coming from Galilee, they're all liberal. Because they had so much contact with Gentiles up there. But Jesus spends most of his ministry in the north, in Galilee. In the first eight chapters, um, we see Jesus' uh, ministry to the crowds, to the, to the multitudes. And that's where we see a lot of miracles are going to be happening. A little bit of his teaching, but more of his actions, again, recorded by <coughs> Mark in these first eight chapters. And it's also interesting that in, in the first eight chapters, whenever Jesus does something, heals somebody or does some miraculous event, he follows that up with telling the people to be quiet about it. Don't tell anybody. Even the demons that he casts out, he, he forbids them to say who he is. He doesn't want word getting out about who he is yet because it's early on in his ministry. So we're going to see that. So one through eight, the beginning half of eight, he's in Galilee. Who is Jesus, minister to the crowd? Eight, the back half of eight through ten is interesting. That's the trip to Jerusalem. Now remember, they're up here in the north, in Galilee. In the south is Judea, and that's where Jerusalem is. But there's a problem, and it's that middle county, that middle province. It's Samaria. The whole province is the province of Samaria. Any Bible students in here know what the problem is with Samaria? What do, the, what do good Jews think of Samaritans? No good. They were, they were sellouts. They were half Gentile, half Jews who intermingled with the nations that uh, had, had captured them. And Jews didn't like Samaritans, but guess what? Samaritans didn't think so much of those Jews either. But the Jews were so snooty that they would, they would not walk through Samaria because they thought that was giving too much credit to Samarians. So they would, across the river in South Galilee, Cross the Jordan, walk down the wilderness of Perea, rough country over there, and then recross around, uh, around Jericho and come across and then come into Judea from that, from that direction, adding a whole big pain and a lot more miles to their walking, crossing a river twice, just so they don't have to go through Samaria. And uh, we're going to see that Jesus doesn't do that. Um, and again, he breaks a lot of rules here. But 8 through 10 is Jesus focusing not on the multitudes, but on the group of disciples, the 12. And it's really on their trips from Galilee to Jerusalem. So they're going from north to south. And we see that in that middle section. Then the last section, verses, chapters 11 through 16, uh, 
This all takes place in Jerusalem, and it's how Jesus becomes the king. And it's rejection by the Jewish leaders and Christ's ultimate crucifixion. So three, play, three acts in one history, and we see that here. So at this time, we're going to, your, your, your um, paper there that kind of looks like a cartoon, we're going to watch a video that will give us a great introduction. It's going to walk you through each section of that. And then we're going to spend the last part of this morning talking about who is Mark and why is he significant and how is it that you and I might be able to relate to this young man who writes the first gospel, the earliest one in history. Let's take a look at this presentation from the Bible Project this morning. The Gospel According to Mark. It's one of the first accounts of the life of Jesus, and our earliest historical traditions link this book to a Christian scribe named Mark, or John Mark. He was a co-worker with Paul and a close partner with Peter. And in fact, an ancient church historian named Papias, he recalls that Mark had collected all of the eyewitness accounts and memories of Peter and then shaped them into this account. But Mark didn't just randomly throw the pieces together. He's carefully designed this story of Jesus. In the first line of the book, Mark makes this claim about Jesus. It's the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now what's interesting is that this is the only time Mark is going to tell you what he thinks. For the rest of the book, he's going to influence you by simply putting Jesus' actions and words in front of you and showing you how other people react to him. Now Mark's designed the story of Jesus as a drama with three acts. The first one set in Galilee, the third one is set in Jerusalem, and the second act shows Jesus on the way from one place to the other. And each of the acts focuses on repeated theme. So in act one, everybody's blown away by Jesus and they're wondering, who is this Jesus? In act two, it's the disciples who are struggling to understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And then in act three, we watch the surprising paradox of how Jesus becomes the Messianic King. Let's just dive in and you'll see how it unfolds. After the opening line, Mark begins with a quotation from the ancient prophets Isaiah and Malachi, who said that God would send a messenger to Israel to prepare them for when God would show up himself to rescue his people and become their king. And Mark introduces John, the Baptist, as that messenger. And then right when you expect God to show up personally, Mark introduces Jesus. And as he comes onto the scene, the heavens open, God's spirit descends on Jesus, and God says, you are my beloved son. After this, Mark places in front of us a summary of Jesus' core message. He went about Galilee announcing the good news that God's kingdom has come near. Jesus is carrying forward the story from the Old Testament scriptures about God's rescue operation for his world. Through Jesus, God is restoring his reign over the world by confronting and defeating evil and its hold on people's lives, and then by inviting them to live under his reign by following Jesus. From here, Mark's given us a big block of stories showing us Jesus' power as he brings God's kingdom. He goes about healing people whose bodies are sick or broken or under the oppression of dark spiritual powers. And Jesus even does something that for Jewish people, only God has the right to do. He forgives people's sins. And Jesus' actions here produce lots of different responses. So some people follow him and become his disciples. Other people don't know what to think, and still others reject him completely, especially Israel's leaders who accuse him of blaspheming God and being empowered by evil. 
But Jesus isn't surprised by these responses. In fact, he draws attention to it. In chapter 4, Mark has collected many of Jesus' parables about the hidden, mysterious nature of God's kingdom. And Jesus says that his message is like seed falling on different types of soil. Some are receptive, some are not. Or it's like a mustard seed that's very tiny, it seems insignificant, but then it grows huge and surprises everyone. Jesus' point is that he really is the Messiah, bringing God's kingdom, but it doesn't look like what anybody expected. And this growing confusion about Jesus among the crowds is connected to a key idea Mark emphasizes at the end of Act 1, that even among Jesus' disciples there's confusion. Even they are struggling to grasp who Jesus really is, and that brings us to Act 2. It begins with a crucial conversation. Jesus takes the disciples aside and he asks, who do you all say that I am? And Peter speaks up saying, you're the Messiah. But it becomes clear that for Peter, this means that Jesus is a victorious military king from the line of David who will rescue Israel from the Romans. But for Jesus to be the Messiah means that he's the suffering servant king of Isaiah 53 who will bring God's rule by giving up his life in Jerusalem. And the disciples, they don't get it. They think following King Jesus is going to mean fame and status and importance, and Jesus makes it clear that following him is actually like dying, like carrying your own cross. It means rejecting violence and pride and selfishness and giving one's life out for others in acts of service and love. He has the same conversation with them two more times, and it all culminates in Jesus' important statement that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to become a servant and give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples still don't get it. They respond in confusion and fear. And so here in Act 2, Mark has placed another key story that echoes the book's introduction. Jesus takes three of his disciples up to a mountain, and he's suddenly transformed. He's radiating with light and glory, and a cloud envelops them. Now, this is just like the glory of the God of Israel that showed up long ago on Mount Sinai. And then the two prophets who stood in God's presence on Mount Sinai, Moses and Elijah, they appear next to Jesus as God announces again, this is my beloved son. Now, by placing this story in the middle of all these conversations in Act 2, Mark is making an astounding claim that Jesus, God's Son, is the physical embodiment of God's own glory. And in Jesus, the glorious God of Israel is going to become king by suffering and dying for the sins of his own people. It's a puzzling claim that confuses and scares the disciples as they leave the mountain. Which brings us to Act 3. Jesus makes a very public royal entry into Jerusalem for Passover. People are hailing him as the Messiah. Then he enters into the temple courtyard and he asserts his royal authority by running out the thieves and crooks and stopping the sacrificial system. Then this kicks off a whole week of Jesus debating and confronting the leaders of Israel, condemning their hypocrisy, and so they set in motion a plan to have him killed. And Jesus warns his disciples, predicting that Jerusalem and its temple will be destroyed within a generation, and his disciples will be persecuted just like him, until he returns one day to bring God's kingdom fully over the world. And it all leads up to the final night. Jesus has his last Passover meal with the disciples, a symbolic meal that told the story of Israel's liberation from slavery through the death of the Passover lamb. And Jesus takes these symbols and he gives them new meaning. They point to the liberation from sin and death that will happen through the death of the suffering servant Messiah. 
From here, the story rushes forward to Jesus' arrest, his trial before Israel's priests and the Roman governor Pilate, all resulting in Jesus' crucifixion. And it culminates in a key scene that matches the important scenes from Acts 1 and 2. Except this time, it's darkness that descends, not a cloud. And instead of the divine voice from heaven, it's Jesus' voice crying out before he dies. And then most surprising is that it's a Roman soldier who sees Jesus die, who grasps and then announces who Jesus is. This man was the Son of God. He's the first person in the story to recognize the story's shocking claim about Jesus' identity, that it's the crucified Son of God who's the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who died for his friends and for his enemies. After this, Jesus' body is placed in a tomb, and on the first day of the new week, two women from his disciples come to the tomb, and they discover that the tomb is empty, the stones rolled away, and an angelic man informs them that Jesus isn't here, that he's risen from the dead. And so he orders them to go and tell this good news to the other disciples that Jesus is alive, that he'll meet them back up in Galilee. And the women, they're freaked out. Mark says that they fled from the tomb in terror, telling no one, for they were afraid. And that's how the book ends, with Jesus' disciples showing the same kind of fear and confusion that concluded Acts 2 and 1. Now, if you look in your Bible, you'll see that the Gospel of Mark has more to its ending, where Jesus appears, he speaks to his disciples, but there's also a note there telling you that that ending is not part of the original book, that it's only found in later, less reliable manuscripts. Now, it's possible that the original ending got lost or that Mark actually never finished writing his account, but it's more likely that this abrupt ending is intentional to make a point. The entire story has focused on the shocking claim that puzzled Jesus' disciples from beginning to end, that it's the suffering, crucified, and risen Jesus who's the Messiah, the Son of God. That God's love and upside-down kingdom were revealed as Jesus died for the sins of the world. And so this story ends without closure, and it forces you, the reader, to grapple with this very strange and scandalous claim about Jesus. And are you going to run away like the women? Or are you going to recognize Jesus as your king and go and tell the good news? And only you can answer that question. And that's what the Gospel of Mark is all about. And then well done. And we're going to crawl through this over the next few Sundays, but I want you to keep that meta narrative in your mind as we as we do go through it. Um, that's going to be really important to keep. I think sometimes the miracles, the 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 teaching, the things that Jesus did, especially in Mark, are so interesting in and of themselves that we get down so deep in them, we forget the historical picture of what's going on here. And I think it's really helpful. I'm gonna do my best to keep us within the realm of that historical timeline so we can understand what is going on. Now today, when, as, we, as we head to our last act this morning, I wanna just focus on our author today. Of course, we know the author is the Holy Spirit, um, but I wanna focus on Mark himself. Now, you saw it in, your, in that little video there. This is actually who? John Mark. Does that name ring a bell to anybody? Yeah. What, what do you know about John Mark? Yeah, he went with Paul and Barnabas. Matter of fact, we find out in Colossians, I think it's 3.14. Four, or write this down. Colossians 4.10, that's what it is. He is a, a cousin to Barnabas. So he and Barnabas... And Barnabas is a nickname. 
uh, his, his actual name is Joseph. Um, he and Barnabas are related. They're, they're cousins, so they're very close. So that explains a little bit why Barnabas would be in his corner there. Now, this is what's interesting to me, and this little bit of history I think is so important because we just don't, I think sometimes we don't think of the, the Gospels as actual literal history. So I want to connect a couple of dots here. We know for sure who Peter, uh, who uh, uh, John Mark's mom is, and her name is Mary, along with every third woman, it seems like, in the New Testament, right? Am I right? <laughs> and a lot of Marys or Miriams, uh, with the, the Greek version of Miriam is Mary. A lot of Marys, so it's a really popular name. Um, but we know that that was his mom. And what's interesting about Mary is that we know that she owned a large home in Jerusalem. She was a woman of means. Um, and it, most likely it appears that that's where they were uh, in the upper room was Mary's house. It was the upper floor of Mary's house there in Jerusalem. She also owned a home in Galilee. So she would go back and forth. Um, which is interesting. Um, she was probably from the Capernaum area. She has another home because remember what I said up there is kind of like a, a beautiful tropical paradise. So, so Mary had a place there, but she also had a large home in Jerusalem. And this is John Mark's mother. And we also know that um, Peter um, heavily influences John Mark. He's definitely Peter's scribe. So he writes down everything that Peter is saying. We think Peter probably dictated some things to him, but John was able to catch all of the history uh, on these events from Peter. Now, here's a thought. Some, some think this could be a possibility. I don't think I've got it on the screen there, Paul, but it's, it's a, at the end of 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, Here's what the script, this is Peter talking. He's writing at the end. He says, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. Now, Babylon there we think is a, a oh, it is up there, a veiled reference to Rome, that Peter's in Rome. And we know that Mark is with him, but look what he says. And so does Mark what? My son. So there is some internal possible evidence that, John Mark was literally the physical son of Peter, Peter's wife being Mary. That, 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 that is one thought uh, that has been put forth. Um, even if he's not, he, he would call him here my son, just like Paul calls Timothy, his spiritual son. So Peter would have probably led Mark to the Lord either way, whether Mark was his physical son or not. But it would make sense if, if he was literally, John Mark was literally Peter's son, that he would have firsthand information about all of this. So it's fascinating to think about, isn't it? So this house that's owned by Mary in Jerusalem is a large house, has, has a lot of rooms. We know the, uh, the church met there. Had to be a big place. Um, and that's going to come in important here in just a minute as well. Uh, as Peter's scribe, Mark's writing style is a lot like Peter's sermon style. If you look at how Peter speaks in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, Mark writes that way in his gospel. They're very similar. Um, so that might be some answer to why that is. All right, back to that other screen there. Um, it's interesting, Mark never identifies himself as the writer of this gospel, except in the title given to it. And that was given to it very, very early in the first century, by way of history, 
in 120 AD, it, uh, the earliest church father wrote and, and says, this is John Mark, who is the author of this, and it became known as the Gospel of Mark. But there, it, there may be one internal piece of evidence where Mark speaks of himself. And uh, it's probably something you've ignored. And it's kind of weird, but it's in there. And it's found in Mark 14, verses 51 to 52. And we think that this, this might be Mark talking about himself. Um, he is probably this young man that's mentioned. So let's pull that scripture up and read it to you. Now, a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth around his naked body. Now, let me, let me put a pin in that. What do you mean follow him? So think about it. We're, we're pretty sure that the upper room was Mary's house when Mary is John Mark's what? Mother. And all of a sudden, you know, John Mark's downstairs. He hears them all get up and go out, and they're singing a hallel as they're walking out. And Jesus is going to the garden, and he gets up, and he wraps himself in a sheet, and he follows them. Now, he's, he's probably a little bit ways behind, and we know that they go out of the city, down the Kidron Valley. That's a pretty strenuous walk. Cross the, the little stream down there, the, the brook Kidron, and up the other side into the, into the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a pretty good little walk, and all he's wearing is a sheet. So he's following them at a distance. Well, by the time he gets there, the gig is up. Uh, Jesus has been outed. He fixes the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. And what are the disciples doing at this point? There, everybody's getting out of Dodge. And poor, this poor kid shows up just as everybody's leaving. Bad timing. So I want you to get the historical picture of that. And the young men laid hold of him. What young men? The guards, the temple guards that are there to get Jesus, they grab a hold of They say, well, here's one of them. You know, here, here's, the, here's the, the, the slow one, right? Now look at the next verse. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. So he leaves, he leaves his sheet. He's probably worn like a toga, which is not uncommon. And he literally runs home with no clothes on. Thank God it was dark. But he's literally running through the forest. This is rough country. Uh, the Kidron Valley is horrible country. And he literally runs home naked. And here's the thing. He gets all of his information for his gospel from Peter. Where's Peter at this point? He's gone. How does Peter know about some kid that shows up wrapped in a sheet and they grab him and he runs away naked? He wouldn't have known that unless that person was Mark himself, and Mark includes that in his gospel, right? I love taking the Bible glasses off and looking at this as real history, and I want to open your eyes to some of that as we walk through this. So this poor kid, he, he, he has an issue with running away, all right? So the guys grab him, and he runs away, and then we find out next, if we'll go back to that uh, Go to the next, whatever the next screen is there, Paul. Um, later on, fast forward, resurrection happens. I'm assuming somewhere in there, Peter leads this young man to faith in Christ. He becomes a follower of Christ post-resurrection. And he's in Jerusalem because that's where he's living. And he, ru he runs into Barnabas, his cousin. And he goes with Barnabas and Paul on their missionary journey. But in Acts 13, 13, jot it down. Is, is 
again, it's a character flaw in this young man. He's probably only about 20, 21 years old at this point, um, best we can tell. Paul and Barnabas decide to take him on their first missionary journey to be their, literally, the word is minister. It's more like a servant or an assistant. He was their hands-on runaround guy, get stuff ready, whatever we need doing, you do it. And so he's with them, and they're traveling around, and they get on a boat to go to their next stop, and something happens in Acts 13, 13. Uh, this, Luke doesn't tell us what it is. Again, Luke's getting his information from Peter as well. But John Mark goes home. As they get on a boat to go to their next stop on their missionary journey, John Mark bails on them. He gets on a boat, and he goes back to Jerusalem. He goes home to mom. We don't know what it is, but, but somewhere there, he, he blows it with Paul, and he runs back home on that first missionary journey. Well, they get back after they, the Paul and Barnabas continue their, their trip, and it's significant. They go to several other places. They finally make it back to Jerusalem, and then what happens? You can jot this down in Acts um, 15.39. They get back, and they're, they're planning. Uh, they give a report. And they say, hey, let's go do that again somewhere new. Let's go to a new place. Let's take the gospel somewhere else that it hadn't been. And Paul's like, yeah, that's a great idea. And Barnabas says, okay, I'll go get Mark and John Mark and we'll hit the road. And Paul says, yeah, I don't think so. Right? And why is Paul not real excited about bringing John Mark along? Because he blew it. Now I'll tell you something. You don't have to read much between the lines to get an idea of the Apostle Paul's personality. Right? He, he was hardcore. He was, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, right? He was nothing if not a laser-focused, hard-line, dedicated disciple of Christ. And John Mark blew it once, and Paul said, I got nothing to do with that. We don't have time for children. Not coming. And it tells us in Acts 15, 39, he says, Then the contention became so sharp, that means... They had a pretty good disagreement that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. Now, the good news is that the good news gets to go to two places and not one. Right. <laughs> and Barnabas, by his very name, is very different from Paul. His name, Barnabas, means son of comfort. Barnabas is a guy that's give everybody a second chance. Paul, not so much. Paul said, you know what? You blow it once. You're out. Paul's a hard man. Because Paul is laser-focused and dedicated. So it was probably, it was John Mark that came between Paul and Barnabas. But I want you to see this, and this is kind of the import of what I want to say today. As, as, and I, I have some application for you and I here. And it's simply this, that's not the end of John Mark's story. Now, did he, did he run away naked when they, when they snatched him up at the Gethsemane? Probably, yeah. Okay, he ran away. Did he lose heart and come home on that first missionary trip for whatever reason? Yes, he did. did. Did it cause a problem between Paul and Barnabas? Yes, it did. Did the gospel go in two places instead of one? Yes, it did. And guess what? He doesn't bail on that second missionary journey. He, he stays with Barnabas. And we fast forward towards the end of Paul's life. And it's probably right after this that Mark writes, John Mark writes the gospel of Mark with Paul in Rome. Look what it says in 2 Timothy 4.11. Jot that reference down. Paul, the great, stoic, hard-line, laser-focused Paul, 
changes his mind. I lo- I'm not going to lie to you. When I read this verse, tears fill my eyes. Because I'm going to tell you something. I might be named Paul, but my middle name is John. And I relate more to John Mark than Paul the Apostle. And so do you. Look what the scripture says. Second uh, Timothy 4.11. Only Luke is with me. Now Paul's in, in prison. He's writing here. And Luke is his personal physician. It's the same guy that writes Luke. And second Luke, which you know as Acts. It's the second half of Luke. Look what he says. As he's writing to Timothy. He says, get Mark. John Mark, same guy, and bring him with you. Now look at this. For he is useful to me for ministry. Now, let me say this to you. The way that Paul is saying this, I'm pretty sure I'm right. This is Paul saying, I was wrong about that kid. I was wrong. And God's got plans for him. And I need him, and he can help me. The same Paul that broke from his best friend and went in a different direction comes towards the end of his life and says, you know what, that kid that I wrote off, I wrote him off a little too soon. God's not done with him. And beloved, God's not done with you either. I love Mark because I relate to him. Do you relate to him? Or you relate more to Paul. Nobody gets a second chance. And yet even God changes that stubborn apostle's mind. You ever, you ever quit? You ever put your journey with Christ in neutral? Coast a while? And you ever hit a hill and find yourself going backwards? Then think the old timers called that backsliding. Amen? You all know, say amen or ouch. <laughs> you ever been backslidden? You ever walked away from the Lord and said, you know what, I, th- I got what I need from you, but this is too much. You ever go on a flesh trip that surprised even you? You ever lose heart? You ever get discouraged in your walk with the Lord? Be of good cheer. If God can restore Mark and use him, He can and will do the same with you. And that's the message for today. Don't forget that when we read this gospel. The author was the guy that Paul said, he's no good. God will never use him. I'm going to go into ministry without him. He's a failure. That's why I titled this message, Failing Forward. And even Paul at the end realizes, you know what? I spoke too soon about that. That young man is something and God is and will continue to use him mightily and so he did let me tell you the end of John Mark's story now you won't find this in the Bible you have to go to a guy named Eusebius a couple of others of the church fathers and early writers of first century history but it's told that John Mark makes his way to northern Africa a city called Alexandria. And in Alexandria, he shares the good news of Jesus Christ. The church fathers write, the early church writers write that, that 
John Mark had this attitude as he walked into this extremely pagan city of Alexandria that everybody there ought to bow the knee to King Jesus. And he approached everyone with that mindset. And they did. And he plants the church in Alexandria. And he does such a good job of it that in the, at the end of the late of the 60s AD, towards the end of that, right before Jerusalem's destroyed, he's martyred. He's executed for the faith of King Jesus. He is the servant of the servant king. So much so that he plants a church and gives his life in northern Africa. The kid that ran naked from the Garden of Gethsemane died for the king. The kid who called it quits on a missionary journey planted a church and watered it with his blood for the glory of the servant king. And he finished well, and so can you. But you got to do one thing, and that's the end of the message today. And it's simply this, you can't quit. Y'all ever been through hard seasons? I feel like I live in a constant hard season. Especially this year. This year's been hard for me. I'm not going to come up here and moan and cry. But I'm going to tell you what. I miss Jay Lawrenson. Y'all don't really understand what a comfort to my heart that man was. And I know he's right where God got him. And, and, and I know there's some other folks that are heading in that direction. And it's God's plan. That's okay. And they need to. And I'm excited about what God's, but my heart hurts a little bit. It's a discouraging season. I need Mark. And I need to, this sermon might be more for me than you. But here's what I'm telling myself, Pastor Paul. You can't quit. You can't pull an early John Mark because God's got plans for you. There's a church that needs to be established. And there's a king that needs to be served. And that's not over just because God's shuffling around his, his workers. Amen. We don't know who wrote this poem. But I love it. And it's simply called Don't Quit. And I want to close with that today. And I want, to, I want to call you to not quit but recommit. We got work to do this year, folks. God's got work to do in your life and heart. There's some actions that need to happen. Amen? Better to hear well done than well said. We got some well doing to do this year. And, 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 and that's going to take every one of us getting in first gear and start moving forward and we can't quit because when things get wrong and they sometimes will and when the road you're trudging seems all uphill when the funds are low but the debts are high and you want to smile but you have to sigh when care is pressing you down a bit rest if you must but don't you quit success is failure turned inside out the silver tint of the clouds of doubt and you can never tell how close you are. It may be near when it seems afar. So stick to the fight when your heart is hit. It's when things seem worst that you mustn't quit. And again, that may be for me this morning. But would you join me? Would you join me in recommitting to the gospel ministry here at Wildwood? That expansion of the kingdom has to happen in us first. 
but then we got to take it out there. Amen? And we got to do that together. So I want to invite you to recommit and join us So if we, as we look at this Mark who did it and finished well. Let's commit ourselves to that. Maybe you need to come and talk to the Lord about that. You know, so my dad always said there's something about kneeling down in prayer. I don't know if that was the Catholic in him. He never got over that. He loved to kneel before the Lord. And we got a kneeling bench up here. Maybe you need to come and kneel before the Lord. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? I don't even think I'm his. Come talk to me. We're going to sing a song. Don't sing. Come talk to me. And let's, let me tell you how you can repent and put your faith and follow Jesus the rest of your day. And follow him immediately. As it says in Mark, maybe you're discouraged and you need to tell him, Lord, it's you and I and I'm not quitting. And I'm here to tell you, I'm not either. Would you stand and join me? Father, we love you today. Thank you for John Mark. How interesting is it that you would use this young man who runs away from Jesus at Jesus' most desperate hour, who quits on Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And yet, you had plans for him, and he finished well. Died for the king. And lived for him. Amen. Don't hush that. Lord, we thank you for Mark. We commit and recommit our lives to you. Because you're the one that's going to hold us fast, not the other way around. May we think about that as we sing this song together this morning. May we thank you in Jesus' name.